about transition from Australia to Manchester. Now, obviously we were swamped with details to work out, uh, administrative details, all of the things I'm terrible at, you know, working out visas and travel and all this stuff, moving out, all our, all our, all our goods, everything. But when we had free time, our thoughts would turn to our destination. Our thoughts would turn to Manchester. Our thoughts would turn to the UK. And so we started finding out about this country. Now, I'd been here once briefly, and obviously when I was born, but I couldn't remember that, and Cherie had never been. So we started finding out about England. You know, where are the counties? We had pretty, uh, the only county knowledge I had was through uh, cricket. And, um, and so we started finding out, where are things in England? And where's Manchester? What's the climate like in Manchester? How warm is it? How dry is it? And uh, we'd find out all these things. And uh, what, what do we, I, I'd buy a book, you know, about English culture. What are the, the rules of etiquette in the UK? Uh, people are concerned about manners in this country. You have to learn about that. Uh, learn about what words I should and shouldn't use. Learn about how not to jump in a queue and all this kind of stuff. So we were finding out about our destination. Now, why focus for three weeks, as we are going to do, on this subject of heaven? Why are we doing that? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it, that if this is where we're going, if we know Christ and our destination is heaven, then we should have our thoughts turning toward our destination. It makes sense. And so there's this quote from J.C. Ryle who says it this way. I'll just put this up on the screen. The man who is about to sail for a distant country as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You are leaving the land of your nativity. You are going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now surely, if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Makes sense, doesn't it? It just makes sense that we would think about our home. Now my question is, are you keeping heaven in view? Are you thinking about your destination? Are you excited about where you're going? Are you excited about your heavenly home? Why is this important? It's really important that we're excited about it because if we lose sight of our goal and our energy toward that goal, then what happens to our energy in the Christian life? We lose our motivation, don't we? We lose our motivation. If our focus is only on this world, then we forget our motivation in the Christian life. And what will happen is this, inevitably, is we will trade that glorious hope that we have for a poor substitute in this life, in this world. So if our hope and our, our joy and our excitement is not towards heaven ultimately, then it will be towards something in this world that's a poor substitute. So hence this three-week series on heaven to put our goal back into view and also that we would stir up a longing for it. Now another quote from Jonathan Edwards, he said this, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labour for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Now Edwards is right that our proper end is not in this world, in this life. Our proper end is for another world, ultimately. We are purpose-built for another world. Now have a look at our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, and you'll see this. 
We'll be looking at this passage uh, this morning and, and zooming in on different parts of it. 2 Corinthians 5 5. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. Now, he talks about not mortality, that's not our purpose, but immortality, this very purpose. He has made us for eternity. He has not made us for this world. And so, in John 17, when Jesus is praying, he says about his followers, he says, They are not of this world any more than I am of this world. So we don't belong in this world. This is not ultimately our home. And so frequently in the scriptures we are called exiles, sojourners, aliens, strangers. We don't ultimately belong here. And you know, in the history of God's people, there have been many times where God's people have not been home. They've been in exile, been in slavery, longing for that place that they know as home. They're longing to go back. That's us. We're longing for this true home. Now, do you believe this? Do you believe that you are not ultimately made for this world? Do you believe that you're purpose-built for another world? It's so important that we believe this. And the amazing promise for us held out in this passage is that this is already our possession. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 1. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. It doesn't say that we will eventually have, which is true, but it talks in the present tense that we have this building. It's already our possession. It's an inheritance that's laid up for you and me. We haven't come into that inheritance yet. And John 14, 2, Jesus said, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. The master builder has gone to prepare a place for us and he's going to take us to be with him. Now, we're going to take some time to learn about that inheritance. Now, I'm obviously not qualified to do this, because I've never been there. I can't really tell you firsthand about your home, but the Lord in his word, the one who, built, who is building it and has built it for us, tells us much about heaven. So, first point here is longing for a better home. Now we're titling this series, Going Home, and I love this graphic that Jez has made. I think it's brilliant, and I've told him that we should make t-shirts and, and sell them on the website, and I'll buy one. And so, um, it, this idea of home strikes a deep need, need in all of us, doesn't it? All of us long for a place that we belong. All of us long for a place where we are secure. All of us long for a place where we're loved and understood and a place where we can rest and a place where we can laugh. All of us long for home deeply. And so we love stories about home. Uh, the Hobbit is a great example. Just uh, went to saw last week, went to see last week the third movie in the Hobbit series, and it's all about this whole story is all about Bilbo, this Hobbit who leaves home and goes on an adventure to help the dwarves reclaim their home, and through many perils he comes back to his home, and it starts with Gandalf showing up at his front door and giving him a nudge out the door and telling him that he needs to get on this adventure, and Bilbo is. He's, he's in love with his home and he doesn't want to leave and he says that adventures are terrible, what does he say, horrible things adventures make you late for dinner. He doesn't want to leave. He loves his home and his whole world is wrapped around his home. But it's only as a result of this adventure he realises that there are purposes in the world much bigger than what he first saw. And there are homes in the world much greater and much more glorious than his home. And so when he comes back, his, in him is awakened this longing for a more glorious home. 
And I pray that that would be what happens in us. And the Lord would have that in us too, that out there in the world, and as we read his word, that we would learn that our purpose is not just to settle down and make a home in this world, but it's much greater. And there is a home much more glorious for us. So that, the big lesson today is this. This world is not our home. We live and long for our real eternal home with the Lord in heaven. So we have something far greater to live for. Where is home for you? Our strong tendency is to want to make this world, like Bilbo, our home and to create a life for ourselves that satisfies all our deepest longings. But this world was never meant to be our home. And so we have in our passage an illustration of tents. Now, I wonder if you like camping. Now, camping can be great. It can also be a disaster. I wonder if you've had a disastrous camping trip. And it's, you, know, you set out and you're excited. You get time in the country and it's quiet. But when you get there, the reality sets in. Rain, mud, mosquitoes maybe, depending on where you are. Uh, loud campers and filthy toilets and uncomfortable sleep. And what do you do in the end? You groan. You groan and you say, oh, for a warm shower and for a hot meal. And oh, that I could get home and even just a clean bathroom would be just fantastic. And we groan, longing to be in a better place. Now have a look at this passage. And this is the whole point that Paul is making. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 4. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, we know that Paul made tents. He was a tent maker by trade, and so he understood tents. He'd obviously repaired many of them, and he understood how temporary they are. They're not fit for a permanent dwelling, are they? They're flimsy and they don't last. But compare that to heaven. What does it say in this passage about our heavenly dwelling? It says it's like a building. It's like a permanent dwelling. It's eternal. It's not built by human hands. And so notice how much better it is. Verse 4, what does it say? We wish to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In other words, what is coming, the age and the home that we have ahead of us, is going to swallow up this one. It'll be a quality that surpasses it. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, who really, I think, is one of those writers who gets heaven better than anybody I've ever read. And he, he, says, in, he says in Narnia somewhere in, in the silver chair, he says, it's, it licks this world hollow. That's, and in the last battle in the book, he, he talks about the Shadowlands. He talks about the world being like a shadow. And there's even a, a movie of C.S. Lewis, isn't there, about the, called The Shadowlands. But I'll just read this little excerpt from The Last Battle where uh, Peter and Edmund and Lucy have died in a car accident in this world. And they're standing before Aslan. And they're still starting to come to terms with the reality of what's going on. And Aslan said this. He said, there was a real railway accident said Aslan softly, your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. So I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it. 
the reality is not this world. This is the dream. The reality is our eternal home with the Lord in heaven. This world is a shadow compared to the reality of heaven. And though there are many joys in this world, many things to delight ourselves in, ultimately it's a world bound to futility. And it's passing away and it's full of pain and grief. And so Philippians 1.23, Paul sits in prison and he says, I desire to be with Christ and depart. And that would be better by far. It's better by far to be with Christ. The more we know our glorious hope, the more we'll long for it. Look at, look at the verses in this passage that talk about longing for heaven. Verse 4, we groan and are burdened. Verses 3 and 4, that we feel unclothed, we feel naked or exposed, like a person out in the cold with no warm place to stay. And verse 2, we're filled with this longing for our heavenly dwelling. So I wonder, do you experience that longing? Do you, do you have a longing for your heavenly home? Do you long for heaven? You have that groaning. It makes sense that we do. You know, all creation is groan, groaning for this day. It says in Romans 8 that creation groans. It says the Holy Spirit groans. And we also groan to be with the Lord in heaven. All right, second section here we'll talk about the struggle to keep heaven in view. I wonder how much you're longing to go home. Well, the survey last week that we did was great response. Thank you. We had 68 people respond to the survey. And over the next three weeks, I'll just uh, put some results up on the board of um, you know, what everyone said. And just talk about questions one and two here today. Question one, how much do you look forward to heaven? At a scale of one to 10, the average was 7.6. Not too bad. Not too bad. I know it's a very subjective survey, isn't it? But not bad. But why isn't it a 10? Why isn't our desire a 10? One trouble, I think, is that we don't really know what it is we're looking forward to. We're not exactly sure what heaven will be like, and so it's hard to look forward to it. You know, the old saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bushes. It's, it's what we have in front of us is worth more than what we don't have. Maybe that's the case, and so what's more appealing to us is what we can get right now in this world. And that's a battle and a danger for us. So the battle for us is a battle of faith, isn't it? To live, and what is faith? It's really taking hold of realities that we can't see. Taking hold of God's word and taking hold of realities that we can't see and living in light of those. Letting our decisions be formed and our values be formed around these promises that we can't see. And look at chapter 4 verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the battle of faith is that we press on toward what is unseen, but the reward of faith is that it's eternal, it lasts forever. This is a battle for us. Look at chapter 5, verse 7, same passage. We live by faith, not by sight. This is how we live in light of heaven. Why is this so difficult? I think particularly in our culture, in the Western culture that we are immersed in, is we, we're taught to live for things that we can see. We know that our culture is big on lifestyle. TV shows are all about food and they're all about real estate. They're all about making a better life for ourselves in this world right now. And underneath this is a hoax of materialism. Now, it's fine to watch and enjoy lifestyle shows, but if we buy into this idea that this world is all there is, and that this world is all there is to live for, then we buy into a deadly hoax. And we start to believe that it's our right 
to have the best life we can have right now. And in truth, we've come closer to the best life possible in this world than any generation before us. The quality of our lives is so much better. Our life expectancy is longer, isn't it? Death is further removed from us. Most of us lack nothing in the way of food. We live in sturdier and warmer and more comfortable homes. We enjoy more conveniences. We enjoy more free time than any generation before us. We're truly rich in this present life. And so all of those dangers in the word that apply to rich people apply to us. That we don't set our hope on this world. And so we're faced with this daily temptation to resist putting our hope in this world. So to the extent that we believe this lie that our home is in this world, our hope for heaven will be squeezed out. Question two of the survey, how much does your hope of heaven impact your daily life? Average 6.1. Now, that's again, in one sense, not too bad. But I really think that's a serious problem for us. Now, I don't think that's uh, abnormal. I think that's pretty typical uh, for churches, any church I've been in. But I think it's a serious problem. It, it, it reveals a real issue because if we're not gearing our lives around this hope in heaven, then what are we gearing them around? What are we, what are we pursuing? What are we making our decisions for? And the answer is, if it's not heaven, it's something in this present life. We're setting our hope too much on this world. So a good question to ask ourselves is, what goals are you making? If not the ultimate goal of heaven, then what goals are having the biggest impact on your daily life? What are the goals that are making the most impact? What are they? Maybe we, we want to... Oh, a, a good question to ask would be, well, what do I want to experience before heaven or instead of heaven? Maybe it's to, there's something I want to experience about seeing the world before I, I die or having a family or getting married or whatever it is. And these things compete for our hope in heaven. But how fleeting and disappointing this present life is if we hope in it. You know, uh, just before Christmas, I was part of the group that went to Laurel Court, did a Christmas service, and afterwards we were chatting to people. I chatted to this lady, and she wasn't too old, you know, and she seemed very much in her right mind. We, we sat down and had a chat, um, and I asked her you know, how long she'd been there, etc. She said she lived in Didsbury in a very nice home. She talked with real pleasure about her lovely home in Didsbury. And she spoke fondly of it, and her husband had died just a few months before. And so the home was sold to pay for her uh, living in Laurel Court. And so in a matter of months, she's, uh, her husband dies, she's lost this home that she loved, she lived there for decades, and she, I said, how do you feel about it? That she said, she's heartbroken. How sad for this lady. How sad to put our hopes in the world. The world will disappoint us if we hope in it. And even as it says in 1 Timothy, this world is so fleeting, so fleeting that we can't put our hope in it. And the Lord doesn't want us to be heartbroken. It says in 1 Thessalonians that he does not want us to grieve like those who have no hope. He wants us to truly experience life. And so he wants us to set our hope on heaven. What is our need? Our need is to uncouple our hopes in this world and, and couple them up to his word and his promises to tether our hope on his promises. One of the effects of buying into materialism is that we forget God's promises and we start to forget that they're real. Uh, I wonder if you've read Pilgrim's Progress or know the story. And my, uh, one of my favourite books, and uh, the picture up there is uh, Christian Hopeful, in my kids' version of 
uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and here they are arriving at the heavenly city. And if you know about this story, it, it revolves all around this journey of Christian to the heavenly city. The whole point of the story is to arrive at the heavenly city. The purpose of this, there's no other purpose ultimately than to be in this heavenly city. And that makes sense of the whole Christian story. And late in the game, in this book, Christian and Hopeful encounter a man called Atheist. And I'll just read you a little bit of this. Now, after a while, they perceived far off one coming softly and alone all along the highway to meet them. And Christian said to his fellow, there is a man with his back toward the heavenly city and he is coming to meet us. So he drew nearer and nearer and at last came up to them. And his name was Atheist. And he asked them where they were going. Christian replied, we're going to the Mount Zion. Then Atheist fell into a very great laughter. What is the meaning of your laughter? Christian asked. Atheist said, I laugh to see what ignorant persons you are to take up upon you so tedious a journey and yet are likely to have nothing for your travel but your pains. Christian says, why man do you think that we shall not be received? Atheist says, received? There is no such place as you dream of in all this world. Now, isn't that the response of our culture? That heaven is just something of a fairy tale, something of a myth. It's something that we like to believe to make us feel better. Now, temptation sometimes is to wonder if they're right. Because we can't see it. And it's difficult to prove. And nothing is going to kill our longing for heaven more than doubting if it's real. I wonder if you ever struggle to doubt whether heaven is real. There are some proofs in this passage that assure us that it is. First one, that Christ has been raised from the dead. Have a look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. It says, We have that same spirit of faith. We also believe and know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. What's the proof? That Jesus has been risen from the dead. Now, I really enjoy stone fruit and especially nectarines and grapes I like as well and all kinds of summer fruits I like, but nectarines are probably my favourite. And I get really excited when the really expensive nectarines start showing up in the fruit shop because then I know soon to come will be cheap nectarines that I can afford to eat as many as I want. So the first fruits are a sign of what's to come. Now it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's already been raised. The new life has already begun. The proof of the fact that heaven is coming is that Jesus has been risen from the dead. He's the first fruits. So we know that the rest of the harvest is coming in soon. So we can see there, we also believe and know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with him. Second proof is that God has promised it and he's sealed it. He's spoken it with his own world word and Jesus has clearly promised this for us. John 14, 2. What does Jesus say to his disciples? He's about to leave them and he's reassuring them and he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he goes on to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be with me where I am. So he's promised to us. Revelation 21.5. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down because these words are trustworthy and true. So you have it on the Lord's authority that heaven is real. And it's a sure inheritance. It's not just wishful thinking. We could also, I'll give you a third proof, and it's implicit in the passage. If Jesus was raised, he also died. 
Now, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he die? Was it just to set us an example? Of course not. It was to free us from sin. Why? Why did he free us from sin? He freed us from sin so that we might enjoy eternal life with him. So Jesus died for for a purpose. He didn't die for no reason. He died that we might be with him. It says that in 1 Thessalonians 5, doesn't it? He died so that whether awake or asleep, whether we've died or, or not, we may live together with him. What a promise. So, it's a sure inheritance. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 5. God has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So there's another proof, is that God has promised it and he's sealed it with his Holy Spirit. And so our challenge is to hold on to these promises. We need to keep reading these promises and reminding ourselves of them. All right, last point here. How can we stir up longing for our heavenly home? What's an event you get excited about? Maybe it's the World Cup final. Maybe it's a royal wedding. Uh, Maybe it's the final release of a, a book in a series. Something that you get really excited about, anticipate. How do you stir up excitement for it? We do this a lot, don't we? We talk about it with people who are also excited about it. We talk about it with our friends. We predict what it's going to be like. We, we might even uh, watch the, read the blogs and we might even watch some TV uh, people chatting about it. We might um, buy some merchandise. We might buy a magazine. And you know, in all these ways, we stir up a greater anticipation for the event. How do we stir up longing for heaven? We're going to talk about five ways here uh, to stir up a longing for heaven. The first one is like that. We, in the big, in the lead up to the event, we start learning about it. And so one way is we read the scriptures. We read the scriptures to see what they say about heaven. Next week, we're going to talk about this heavenly home. What's it like? I wonder what questions you have about heaven. What's it like? What will, it, what will I do? What will be there? What will I enjoy in heaven? So find out about it. There are other books on heaven. Randy Alcorn has a big, wide tome on the subject of heaven that is very biblical. It's good. And also C.S. Lewis. You know, there was a time when I prayed uh, that the Lord would stir up a greater longing for me in heaven uh, about heaven. I was on a... a, a and she'd brought Narnia. And I'd never read Narnia. It was only several years ago. Never read Narnia before. And I started reading it and nothing stirred up for me a desire for heaven like the Narnia Chronicles did. Uh, of any book I've read outside the scriptures. So I would encourage, read the Narnia Chronicles if you want to increase your longing for heaven. So read about it. Ask about it. Learn about it. See what the scriptures have to say about it. Number two, turn enjoyment in the things in this world into a deeper longing for heaven. All the things we enjoy in this world can be turned into a desire for our heavenly home. The friendships that we enjoy, the loving relationships that we love, the favourite food that we have, the delight of a well-executed football goal, the warmth and comfort of our homes, the beauty of music and art and a great story, the beauty of nature, snow-capped mountains, um, a sunset, the satisfaction of a job well done, all the things we enjoy most in this life. What are they? They're not things to be uh, set our hope in now, but they're appointed to the life to come. 
So don't let your hope rest on these, but let them be appointed to the joys and glories of heaven. Look at verse 17. It speaks of a surpassing weight of glory. This idea of glory is what we'll experience in God's presence. And those little things that we enjoy in this life, that we love, are a taste of that glory. The infinite glory that's found in God himself. C.S. Lewis has uh, an essay called The Weight of Glory, another recommended read. And he says this, this quote. He says, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, They turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. All these pleasures just point to this glorious country we long for. He says later on in that, that essay, he says, What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. In other words, all the things we delight in now, they're almost too much for us already. Imagine what it would be like to just drink of that uh, undiluted in the presence of God himself, all of those joys. So turn your enjoyments into a longing for heaven. Turn also, third one, is to turn your hardships into a greater longing for heaven. How could that be? Well, hardships are God the Father's loving way of loosening our grip on this world. When we suffer, it intensifies that groaning that Paul talks about, that longing that we would be with him in heaven. So the Lord is actually weaning us off this world and onto another world that we long for. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17, and we see this. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what is it that achieves this eternal glory? It's our troubles. Our troubles have this redemptive purpose of weaning us off this world and shaping our hearts to desire something better. And we think about uh, if you've got kids, you know this, you deprive them of certain things sometimes. You don't give them everything they want. You give them vegetables instead of sweets. Or you tell them they have to do the work that they need to do. What are we trying to do as parents? We're trying to build in our children a better appetite, an appetite for a greater joy that comes through a life well lived, a responsibility and love for others. And we're trying to build in them a greater appetite. Now sometimes for the child it doesn't feel like love. But as parents we know that it is. And it's the same with the father. When you're going through suffering and hardship, the Lord is building in you a greater appetite for glory. And Hebrews 12:11 says, "No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it." So the Lord loves us and is weaning us off this world. Fourth one, be about the business of God's work in this world. And that's a way of stirring up longing for heaven. It struck me as I was writing this that it was Friday afternoon and sometimes the weekend, especially in busy weeks, the weekend creeps up on you and you realise you've got a day off ahead and it's very exciting, isn't it? Now, nothing stirs up longing for a day off better than a busy week, a full week of work. 
And that's the same here. Being about this whole passage, by the way, is not specifically about heaven. It's about serving the Lord and hardship and that how that creates in us a greater longing for heaven. And so we, we saw before about these line and light and momentary troubles. What are they? The light and momentary troubles are troubles that Paul is experiencing by giving his life away and giving the gospel away to people who need it. Verse 17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us the final glory that far outweighs them all. So, be engaged in God's work, give your life away, and that will stir up in you a greater longing for heaven. Fifth one, and this is probably the most important, and the last one, and we'll expand on this next week, and that is that we get to know the Lord better. And John Piper gives an example of a, a, a being rescued by a surf lifesaver. And he says that if you're rescued out at sea by a lifesaver, a grumpy lifesaver, it doesn't really matter what he's like. It doesn't matter if he's friendly or grumpy because he doesn't save you for himself. It doesn't matter what, how friendly he is. But in the case of God, it matters the world that we desire him. It matters the world that he's a desirable God to be with. Why? Because he saves us for himself. So it's really important that we're excited to be with him. 2 Corinthians 4.14, have a look at that verse. The one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So the whole point of heaven is that the Lord is redeeming us to be with him. He died for us so that whether awake or asleep, we might be together with him. How much do you long to be in the presence of Jesus? How much do you long to be with him and to share in his glory? says in 1 Thessalonians and in another place, it says we'll be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord and we'll be with him forever. That's the whole point of heaven is that we be with him. If we don't know Jesus well, then that doesn't sound all that exciting. But the more we know him, the more exciting it's going to be to, be, to know his smile on us, to be known by him, to share in his glory. Now, let's set our hope fully on Christ. Next week, we'll talk about this heavenly home more. What's it like? And so I'd encourage you, just as it says in 1 Thessalonians, encourage each other with these words, build each other up with our hope in heaven. Let's be talking about it. Maybe in your community groups, ask questions about what it will be like. What do we think heaven will be like? And uh, we'll stir up our anticipation for the home God's prepared for us. Let's pray. And uh, I'll just read one passage from Hebrews 11, and then we'll pray together. By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Heavenly Father, we are just amazed and humbled by the fact that you would call us and rescue us for eternal life. Lord, because we had no interest in you. We weren't pursuing you. We didn't desire you. And you pursued us and you awakened us to the glory of your gospel, the glory, Father, of your Son, that we might know you and be redeemed to a life that's of surpassing glory. We, we didn't earn it. We can't earn it, but we receive it gladly. Well, thank you for this hope that you pour into our hearts. You, you give us a hope 
of a life that's free from pain and suffering and a life where we will be loved perfectly, uh, secure and at rest. Lord, how we long for this. I pray that in our hardships and in our joys, you would stir up in us a greater longing for this home you've prepared. Protect us from the lie of materialism. Protect us from living by sight uh, in, in what we can see around us, in, in making a home in this world that we set our hopes upon. Forgive us for doing that. Protect us from it. Uh, turn our eyes again to this hope that we have when you return so that it will be filled with that inexpressible and glorious joy, receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We long for that day. Lord, we do pray, even as uh, Seb said before, and even uh, as your word says, come again, Lord Jesus. Come again soon that we might be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.